can join me in Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we've been working through the Beatitudes, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he kicks off his ministry, his public ministry. Jesus is getting uh, the, the, the fundamental message that he wants to get out there. He kicks it off in this first sermon, and, uh, and so you can turn there, Matthew chapter 5. Now, I want you to bring your memory back to those playground days. Maybe you remember as a kid being on the playground. And you go back and if you were a boy, I was trying to think, I don't know if girls did this as much, but the boys definitely did this. When there was a fight or there was a conflict, the boys on the playground start getting riled up a little bit. What was the first thing that, one, that first boy did when he started to think this might become a fight here? That boy would say something along the lines of, hey, you better watch out. I got a big brother. Remember that? I got a third grader. My brother's in third grade and he'll come beat you up. And then, of course, the retaliatory response of the other kid on the playground will say something along the lines of, well, I got a brother in sixth grade. And so there's a, there's a I'm, I got someone that'll fight for me. These boys are not actually going to fight themselves, but they're going to recruit everyone to fight for them. And they start climbing the ladder, and it's like, I got a brother in high school. Well, I got a brother in college. And maybe I got an uncle who lives nearby. And then you get high enough, and, and, and this is when you know it's getting serious. You say, well, my dad can beat up your dad. Oh, ho, 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 ho. You start bringing the fathers in. And now it's serious because every kid on that playground, they believe they got the baddest dad in the world, the strongest, the best, and they think that if I call dad into the fray, dad's going to take care of some business, right? And if it's really going to blows, both kids are going to recruit their dads to the work, I think it's amazing. This is how God made us. You're born to a mom and a dad, and, and it doesn't take much to one, once you start seeing who your dad is, as you're a little kid, you start seeing, this is, I love my dad. Uh, you just, it's just natural. My dad's the best. He's the greatest. He's the strongest. I remember when my kids were little, I, I was the tallest. Like, it didn't matter. I have, a, I have a brother-in-law who's clearly taller than me, but no, dad, you're taller than him. You're way taller than him because dad's the best. And maybe you dads, if you're young enough, you're still uh, letting that illusion linger and you're not going to dispel that thing. That's what I'm doing. My kids think I'm the greatest thing to ever walk the earth. And that's fun. And they give me uh, notes on Father's Day. Anyway, I enjoy those things. Uh, Isn't it natural that kids love their dads? Uh, they, They just naturally look up to their dads. You just naturally admire dad. Well, if you're a Christian, you have a father, and that father is in heaven. You have a heavenly father. And you're here this morning because you love your dad, your heavenly dad. You're here this morning and every Sunday, and the way you live is in light of who your heavenly father is. And, and providentially, I didn't plan this out, but if you're going through the Sermon on the Mount, the very first place, actually not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but in the entire Bible, or sorry, not the entire Bible, the entire New Testament that God is referred to as a father is in the text we're about to look at this morning. Look at chapter 5. Look at verse 16. 
After this section, he's talking about salt and light. He begins to say, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. God is called a Father for the first time in the New Testament right there in that passage, that your good works will point to your Father. Do you love your Heavenly Father? Jesus points this out. This is going to be a motivation for you as the Spirit leads you, as you say, I love my Heavenly Father. I want others to know my Heavenly Father. I want others to see how great my Heavenly Father is. My Heavenly Father, He's great. My Heavenly Father is a Father who loves me and He takes care of me and He provides for me my every need. And the reason we gather is to exalt the Heavenly Father. And the reason we scatter and we live good lives in the world, it says right here, is because we're motivated by this reality that perhaps as we live for Christ, as we live for the Father in the world, people might see the way we live and they might say, hey, who's their Father? What are they living for? And we're able to say, it's the Heavenly Father, I know. I have a relationship with him. Uh, Let's read the whole text that we're going to look at. The the whole thing here, if you start in verse 13 in chapter 5, Jesus is going right from the Beatitudes, and he's now talking about our role in the world. Look with me, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is using these analogies. He's calling these people who are his followers, who are characterized by these beatitudes, he's comparing them to salt and he's comparing them to light. He's saying, in, in kind of an overview fashion, we're going to review this real quick and we're going to get to some application. He's saying that salt, which functioned in the ancient world as a preservative, Christians are like that. They flavor and they preserve the societies that they're in. And they're like light in that they expose the truth and they reveal the truth in the societies that they're in. And the implication, by context, is that the world is rotting or the world is is enveloped in darkness and that God in his plan to redeem his people has scattered Christians throughout the world to function as salt that slows the decay and as light that exposes the truth. Salt and light. If we were to use relational terms, we would say like this, the world is estranged from our father. They don't know our father. They don't have a relationship with him. Maybe they've heard stories, maybe they've had some beliefs about the Father, but in relationally, they don't have a connection with God. And so Jesus is saying, you have a role to play in the world, church. You have a role to play, Christian, that you're going to be like salt, and you're going to be like light. Salt, let's start with that one. Preservative, it's, it preserves the flavor The world doesn't know the sweetness of God. It doesn't know the goodness of God. And Christians are to be a little bit of that in the world that they live in. They're supposed to point to God with the way they live. 
He makes a statement after that statement that he says that we're all salt. Look at what he says. He makes this, uh, this kind of uh, impossible situation. Salt can't lose its saltiness. But he goes on, he says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus is bringing up a situation that would only really happen if the salt got contaminated with other dirts or other elements. Salt in and of itself is salty, but if it gets impure, it becomes not salty. And he's describing the situation where imagine salt that actually is not salty anymore. Imagine salt that actually doesn't do what it's intending to do. It doesn't preserve anymore. It doesn't flavor anymore. And Jesus makes this strong statement. He says it's not good for anything anymore. And of course, if you follow the analogy, Jesus is saying there are some people in the world who maybe claim to know God, maybe they claim to have a relationship with the Father, maybe they claim to be a follower of Christ, and they claim, they claim to be salt, but in their lifestyle, maybe you know some of these people, in their lifestyle, they don't live in any way distinct from the world. Their lifestyle isn't influencing people for Christ. Their lifestyle doesn't make an impact on the people around them. No one maybe even could tell that they're following Christ. Well, Jesus is saying of these people, Christians are supposed to be salt flavoring the world, preserving the world, and if they're not, look at they're not useful, he says, for anything. This is a strong statement for the church that if, if we're not salty, the only good thing that we could be used for is being thrown out into the middle of the street, Jesus says, that people can use as a walkway. And this is actually what they would do if salt became too uh, useless because it got too impure. What they would actually do is get that salt and throw it on the roads. Jesus makes a statement in Luke 14 where he says that salt, you don't even want to throw it in the manure. It's not even useful for the manure pile. See, manure might be gross. You don't want to handle manure. But at least manure, you could throw it in the garden and what's going to happen? It's going to fertilize the plants. It actually has some usefulness. A salt, however, when you got salt, it's not going to flavor your food if it's not salty anymore. You don't want to throw that on your steak. You don't want to put that on your McDonald's french fries because it's not going to do anything. It's impure. It's contaminated. Instead, uh, you, you might want to throw it with the manure, but Jesus even says, no, you don't want to do that because if you were to do that, it would ruin the fertilizer, and now you can't even use the fertilizer. The only thing you're going to use the salt for is to throw it on the road because the road, it doesn't matter. You don't want anything to grow in the road anyway and what Jesus is saying about saltiness is Christians ought to live in such a way where it's they're noticed their flavor shows they're preserving goodness in their worlds around them and if you don't have saltiness the strong statement that Jesus makes is that not only are you going to be ineffective for the church and for the progress of the truth in the world you're going to be counterproductive just like salt, if it doesn't have a use for even fertilizer, it almost becomes counterproductive. You can't use it on your food. You can't use it for your plants. You've got to throw it in the street somewhere. You've maybe noticed this experientially. How many of you maybe know someone who is turned off to Christ because of the example of a hypocritical Christian? Someone who maybe said they were saved and maybe attended the church and maybe was very much involved, but they weren't salty in the good sense of saltiness. They didn't bring a sweetness to their life that savored of Christ. They didn't preserve the goodness around them like salt. Instead, their lifestyle reflected something other than what their words said. They said they were a Christian. They maybe said they were following Jesus, but they were 
ineffective for the ministry and maybe even counterproductive. It's almost like you want to say to those people, no, don't tell anyone you're a Christian because that gives us a bad name. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. Nominal Christians, Christians in name only, who call themselves followers of Jesus and there's nothing about their life that shows that Jesus says they're actually counterproductive. Well, that's what he's talking about when he talks about salt. And then he goes to light. And in this talk about light, he's, he's saying that we're the light of the world. The church, these Christians, the people who follow Jesus are the light of the world. Their light can't be hidden. They're like that city on a hill. I remember driving through a long, empty road, and, and it was, oh, I think we were on the way to Texas or something, and it's dark, and there's nothing to be seen. You look out this way, that way, and from the front, there's no light, and then you crest a hill, and maybe off in the distance, there's a little light, and there's that city, that city you're going to stop at. When there's pitch black, it doesn't take much for a light to shine and for you to be able to see it. And this is the imagery, even in the ancient Near East, this was even more the case that any small light, when it went pitch black, there were no lampposts outside. When it went black, you could see the light. Jesus is saying to you, if you're a follower of Christ, you are the light. You are what the world has. If they are going to see who God is, it's up to Christians in the world to live as light. You don't hide it. You don't put it on a basket. Now, this is all introductory. I give you an overview of this text. Because I want to, not having an understanding of it, I think I can move quickly because you understand. This is probably the most popular Sunday school lesson because you can actually pull out the salt and you can turn out the light and you can show everyone. It's really easy to teach children about the salt and the light. And so I think we all understand the, the basics of what this means. And I want to spend a lot of time applying this to us. Applying this text to us because this text, listen, has giant implications for the future of our church here. This text has massive implications for how we're going to do ministry and how we're going to reach our community. It has so much to do with our relationships with the world, with your neighbors and your coworkers. This is a crucial text that gives us the guardrails for how we're going to reach our community. This gives us the direction. This tells us how we're going to get there. And I want to give us three applications. We're going to work through three applications. If you're a note taker, these are the notes to write down. Three applications for the reality of Jesus' statement to us that you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. If we take that seriously, here's some things we need to consider. Here's our first implication, application of this text. Here's where we're going to start. We must start with who we are before what we do. Our first focus, to put it another way, must be our own character before we get into whatever strategy we're going to use to reach the community. We must start with our soul before we start thinking about our strategy. We want to start with ourselves, with our character, before we start talking about our competency out there in reaching the world. Now let's talk about the context. Jesus 
has just gone through what we call the Beatitudes. Now, I know you understand now, if you've been here through this whole series, that the Beatitudes are declarations of who the people of God are. This is what they're like. Each one of the Beatitudes is another brushstroke that's painting the picture of the person of God. These are, these are what Christians are like. And he goes through and explains that they're poor in spirit, that they mourn over sin, that they are meek. He goes through and describes this is what every Christian is like. If they've been born again, if the Spirit's in them, these are the characteristics that they have. Now, if you have your Bible open, there might be, uh, right between verse 12 and 13, an editorial heading. You guys got that? You guys see that? My ESV Bible has an editorial heading. It says salt and light. And so what I'm tempted to do is to read the Beatitudes, pause, take a break in my mind, and then start a whole different section and read them as if they're two different parts of a disjointed discourse. Now listen, if I was preaching and I gave a whole introduction and then I paused and I went and sat down for a few minutes... And you guys all sat here awkwardly for a few minutes. And then I got back up and I started again. There might be some disjointedness in my sermon. It might be hard to follow. Well, sometimes the editorial headings do that. It's, Jesus is preaching a sermon here. And so it's not always helpful to have these interjections and new sections and split it all up. This is one flowing sermon. So we need to see the context. And here's the context. Jesus is describing the character of his people. Follow me. He's describing their character. And then he turns it and he says, the the people who are living this way, they're the salt of the earth. They're the light of the world. Now follow me. He's not just saying anyone. Any person ever is a salt in the world or any person is a light. No, no, no. Their context is showing, if we read this in context, the flow of thought is obvious. God's people who are marked by the Beatitudes, who are poor in spirit, who are mourning for sin, who are meek, who long for righteousness, these people specifically are the ones who are functioning in the world like salt and light. The Beatitudes shaped life, you might say. The life shaped by the Beatitudes are the people who are going to make an impact on the world. Here's why we need to think about this. Because ministry is way more about who you are than about what you do. Way more important to you being effective in the church, with your neighbors in evangelism or discipleship, way more important than whatever methods you're trying to use or strategies you want to have or even positions you want to fill, far more important is your own character. Who you are will make an impact on the world rather than what you do. Maybe you've known of people who will do good things but in their hearts, their character don't match up with that thing. That's again hypocrisy and that could be one of the biggest repellents for people growing the, coming to the church. Jesus is saying, everyone who exhibits these characteristics are salt, are light. In other words, they can't help it. It's part of their character. They just live as salt and light in the world. He's not saying, here's some things you need to do in order to become salt and light. He's saying, if this character defines you, it means you are going to live in the world as salt and light. Everyone, every Christian 
as we pursue holiness, and holiness more and more characterizes our lives, the holy life shines in the world and impacts the people around us. I think there's a big victory that Satan had when he convinced the world that holiness is drab and boring and draws people away from the church. Maybe you've seen it in movies, the way Christians are portrayed. You ever watched movies where Christians are portrayed as the prude, have no fun kind of person that gets along with no one, that's standing in judgment over everyone, and those people are presented as the holy ones that want to obey God's word? I think that's a victory for the devil when we are bought that lie that holiness is a repellent. I mean, there's even people in the world, that, in the churches, who think that if I want to reach the world, I got to be more like the world. I got to do the things that they're doing, and I got to talk like they're talking, and I got to get involved in all the same things they're doing. And I think Jesus would say kind of the opposite. He would say that the way we are light in the world is by living a holy life. That's powerful because I'm tempted to think I'm useful when I figure out my good strategy to go make sure I'm doing all these things and that thing and this thing. And Jesus would say, hey, do you want to be useful? Start by being poor in spirit. Start with your character. Start by going back to your very core of who you are. See, the people who are poor in spirit Humble before God, they're the ones who shine. The people who mourn and they're freely able able to admit their sin and to weep over it, they're the ones who shine. The people who are meek, who prefer others before themselves and are willing to even sometimes be taken advantage of, they're the people who shine. The people who long for righteousness because they know who they are and they know what God has given them freely in Christ and they want to be like him, they're the ones that shine. The ones who treat the lowly with mercy or the lost with mercy, they shine. Peacemakers shine. The pure in heart shine. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's going straight for your heart. He's going straight for the core of who you are. Sometimes we want to cut the process in half. We want to shortcut it. We want to get real things done, and so we get a list of things to do. I'm going to be a light in the world, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give more. I'm going to knock on more doors. I'm going to do this outreach. I'm going to do all these new things. I'm going to create a list, and I'm going to make sure that I'm light. And Jesus would say, hold on. That doesn't make you light. Go work on your character, your holiness, Because your holiness is what shines. I think one of the applications of this is before we even think about whatever outreach we're going to do, let's do some inreach and look at our own hearts and honestly assess, am I living out the Beatitudes? And if I look at my life and I realize I'm not shining like I should, I'm not preserving or I'm not flavoring the people around me in their lives, well, I can't just fix that by adding a few things to my to-do list. i got to repent. And the beautiful thing is that God in Christ is for us and that there's one way that we can become the people God has called us to become, and that's by coming back to Jesus and saying, I can't, but you can, and you've promised you will. Lord, change me. 
Ashley and I have a lot of conversations about parenting as we seek to raise our kids. And we're getting close to our first decade finished uh, parenting. And uh, we've got eight years under our belt in parenting. And we're just at the beginning, I feel like. And we're learning so much. But one of the things we tell ourselves, we try to remind ourselves, you know, after reading all these books on parenting, and everybody who's got an uh, opinion on parenting will share it in their books. And you can go through, and everyone's got different ideas of how to raise your kids. And I've just come to this conclusion, and me and Ashley try to keep this at the front, that the most important thing in parenting, the single most important thing in being a good dad and in being a good mom to your kids is just being godly. It's your character. That's it. And all the other things will fall into place, but to pursue the Lord and to humble yourself before him and to walk in obedience, that's what makes you shine. You want to be a good evangelist. You want to reach your neighbors. You want to make sure they're hearing the good news. The first and primary step is to be holy. Because if you remember the progression of the Beatitudes, they take you to the place where you're a peacemaker. And that means out of the purity of your own heart, you're seeking to help people make peace with God. You become an evangelist. Not because you're guilty and you feel like you've got to do it, but because you love people and you love your Father and you want people to know Him. This is so important for us as a church. As we think about who we are and what we're doing, we come to this conclusion that the most important strategy for reaching the lost in our community is holiness. Purity. The most important method of reaching neighbors for Christ is to live a life that's so radically different from the world under the watchful eye of our Heavenly Father and for His glory. This is what the church must be. This is who we are going to be by the grace of God. People who love our Father, who pursue holiness together, and we live such otherworldly lives that people see that and they go, you must have a God that is powerful and good. I want to know him. See, we believe here in a gospel that changes you from the core of who you are. We believe in a gospel that changes you from the inside out. We're not going to ask people to come into this church and try to put on a whole bunch of external things that make them look holy or make them look churchy. That's not what we're about. We preach a gospel that changes you from the inside out. And when people are changed from the inside out, when they encounter the resurrected Christ in his glory, when they understand who they are in their sin in Christ's grace to save sinners, when they understand that their guilt can be totally removed because Christ takes it upon himself, when they get that stuff, it transforms them from the inside so that all the good deeds that flow out of their life are motivated by a pure love for the Lord. Jesus makes Christians like that. This is who we are called to be. And these are the people who are the light of the world and they're the salt of the earth. You could put it this way. The greatest need in our community, indeed the greatest need of the world is for Christians to be real Christians. For Christians to act like who Jesus says they are. For Christians to really be poor in spirit. For Christians to really be mourning over their sin. For Christians to really be meek, to long for righteousness, to labor for purity, to be peacemakers. And even if it comes to this, to be persecuted for the righteous deeds that they're doing in the community and in their lives. 
nominal Christians threaten the health of every church. Christians in name only will ruin the light. I've heard it put this way, false conversions are the suicide of the church. When people maybe think they're saved and they talk about Jesus and they learn Christianese and they can put off that show that communicates to people, hey, yeah, they're a Christian, but they don't have the inward character that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, it shuts the light off. It makes the salt not salty anymore. And slowly the church loses its effectiveness. Which is why church, let's get really practical here. If we want to shine, let's be really concerned about the holiness in our own lives and the holiness of the lives of the people around us. Not in the way that we run around pointing fingers at everyone who we don't think is living a perfect life. But I hope, church, if I am not living in line with the Beatitudes that we've described, if I'm going somewhere else, that you would love me enough to come get me. That you would love me enough to ask me some hard questions. And I hope that we can all commit to this together to say, I want to follow Jesus this way. And if I don't, would you please care for me enough to come after me? Because we have to be pure. And this is what Jesus set up the church to be in Matthew 18. If you see a brother or a sister in sin, go and talk to them. Why? Not to point the finger, but to draw them back and to restore them back to health. What's more powerful than any program that the church could ever have is the health of the church, is the purity of the church. Because the purer the church, the brighter the shining. The purer the church, the more distinct the salt, and the more powerful it works in the lives of the people around us. Jesus says we're the salt of the earth, so let's start by embracing this inward look to make sure we are who Jesus says we are to be. Here's a second application of this text. First, let's focus on who we are, not necessarily what we're going to do. Second, let's embrace our role in the world. Let's embrace our role in the world. Now Jesus says, you are. Not you might be. He says, this is who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And the way he's saying it, even in the grammar, is to make an emphasis. You and you specifically are the light of the world. You and you specifically are the salt of the earth. And he's again referring to these people who live out the Beatitudes in their lives. Now I want you to hear this, church. He is not referring to super Christians, whatever you might think they are. He's not talking specifically about pastors or elders or deacons or missionaries. He's saying that every Christian... As you live out the beatitudes in your life, you are light and you are salt. Now in the, you know, rewind a few centuries ago and you had the Protestant Reformation. And before the Protestant Reformation, you had this big divide between the clergy, who did all the ministry, and the laity, who kind of were ministered to. And one of the great things Martin Luther did and based uh, is teaching on the passage we read in 1 Peter. He began to break that divide. 
And he began to say what the Bible says. And the Bible says that Jesus is the great high priest, but that every believer is a priest as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, we are called as Christians a royal priesthood. And Jesus is saying we are all light. We are all salt. The Bible will say we are all priests. We have all a role to play in the redemptive plan of God. The baker, the janitor, the real estate agent, the businessman, you name it. Every single one of them are all priests in Christ and all have a role to play to bring the good news of the gospel to the globe. Now, I don't know about you. What have you been thinking your role is in a church? What have you thought about in this way? Maybe you thought, I don't really have a role to play here. Maybe you thought that you were kind of like the JV team, and there's the varsity team, that they're going to do all the big stuff, and you just kind of got your thing going here on the side that doesn't really matter. And you looked at the pastors and the Ted and Vivs of the world, and you thought, well, they're doing the real work, and maybe all I can do is write them a check. And they'll go do the work for me. I'm going to pay the ministry to get done by other people. And maybe that has been your mindset. Or maybe you've thought, um, you know, I'm here. I just don't have much to offer. I'm just, you know, I'm limited in my gifts. I just don't have much. I think this text shatters that idea. Because he's saying to you, the ordinary Christian, the ordinary believer, you are light. Embrace that role. You are salt. Embrace it. You have a role to play. And I think that this should thrill us that we are privileged to take part in what Jesus is doing to reach the nations. Amen? You are a part of it. He's called you to participate as salt and light in the world. It's Father's Day. Maybe we could use a sports analogy here. Think of it like this. Think of the football team. Okay, think of this, the, the, the game's going and the coach calls the play from the sideline and the quarterback gets that play and he runs it into the huddle and he starts telling all his players and then they get the play and they all understand what role they're going to play and what they're going to do and they agree to it and they say break and then they scatter and they get to the lines and they'll run the play. Now imagine the church as a football huddle. Here we are. We got the playbook right here. We got our God, our Father, our coach telling us exactly who we are, what positions we are to play. And here's the, here's the idea. Every single one of us has a part to play in this play. And so the weekend is important. But the week is just as important because that's where you run the play. That's where we actually live out all the things that God is calling us to do. Here we come and encourage each other and pray for one another and make sure we understand what we're doing as a, as a body. And then we scatter and we actually go run the play. Imagine that quarterback gets back to the huddle and he starts telling the team, here's the play we're going to run. And the running back goes, oh, that's a great play. I love that play so much. I, I'm, in fact, I'm going to take notes on that play. That's a great play. And then the, the center on the team goes, oh, yeah, did you have a recording of that play? The coach really called a good play. Do you have a recording? I want to go listen to it later. It's a good play call. And they're all sitting around talking about the play. Oh, what a powerful play call. That's just the best play I've ever heard. That coach really knows what he's doing in calling those plays. You know what? 
How long before the coach will be shouting from the sideline, go run the play? And this is what we are doing as a church. We are gathering. We're hearing the play call. We're hearing Jesus, our coach, saying, here's what we are to do and here's who we are to be. And then we scatter throughout the week like salt and like light and we go run the play. We are all called. You are called. If you are a follower of Jesus, You have to embrace this glorious calling that you and I, as ordinary Christians, are salt and light in the world. And we have a crucial role to play in the redemption of God's people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. We all have the role to play. Read the book of Acts. What's powerful about the book of Acts, maybe you could go and read this this week. If you're interested in this, it would be very beneficial to your own personal study. Read the book of Acts and note how many times the gospel is advancing in places where there is no apostle. Where there are no names preaching the gospel wherever they go. A guy by the name of Stephen Neal wrote a book called A History of Christian Missions. Listen to what he says about these early church Christians in the book of Acts. He says this, Nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early Christians. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of those pioneer missionaries who laid the foundation. Few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by the apostles. Peter and Paul may have organized the church in Rome, but they certainly did not found it. Did you hear that? How did the early church explode onto the scene? It wasn't the apostles. Now, Paul preached an early sermon at Jerusalem, and Peter had a lot to do with preaching as well and getting the gospel out. But how did the gospel advance like wildfire? It advanced on the shoulders of the ordinary Christian who understood that Christ was worth it, that the gospel needed to advance and they took ownership of it themselves and wherever God had placed them, whatever job they had, whatever career path they were on, they said, this is where God has called me and I'm going to live like a Christian and part of living like a Christian is talking about Jesus. And the gospel just expanded. There wasn't any strategy to that. There wasn't any five steps to becoming an outreach church. It was just Christians being Christians, living out the Beatitudes. This is our role. This is the role of the ordinary Christian. This is your role as a member of this church, is to embrace this and say, I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. I have a role to play with my neighbors. I have a role to play with my family members and my coworkers and every other person I come in contact with. I am to be salt and light there. Ephesians chapter 4 Paul is writing and he says, hey, listen, (laughs) the pastors and the teachers are given to the church. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. I've read a book where the pastor, he always, he'll stand up and he'll get in front of his church and he'll say, "You, you understand this church, when I became a pastor, I left the ministry. And people can say, what do you mean you left the ministry? He said, when I became a pastor, I left the ministry, and now it's my responsibility to help you do the ministry. That's what he would say. Now, I think that's a little over the top because the pastor doesn't leave the ministry. But here's his point, is that the pastor's role is to equip the saints to do the ministry. I remember I had a friend who had this great opportunity to share the gospel with someone. They had talked and and things were moving and now they're talking spiritual things and he called me. He said, Eric, this person 
They're really asking questions. I'd love to, to invite you over and you could talk to them. And I thought, I could give you help. I can pray for you. I'll give you some pointers on maybe how to talk this through with this kid. But this is your ministry. And this is your opportunity. And you have a calling to, to use what God has put right in your lap to be the salt and to be the light. And I will equip you. But the ministry is for the saints. The ministry is for all believers. Embrace this. Embrace this. All of us embracing this together makes for a powerful Great Commission work to be done. Here's the third application here, and it's right from the text. Jesus so far in this Sermon on the Mount has given one imperative, one command in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. That's the command given to Christians who are being persecuted. Rejoice. But then there's a second, there's a second imperative. We find it in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine. Here's our third application to you. Let your light shine. We've sung songs about this in Sunday school. We've heard this all our lives as Christians. Let's think about this again. You are called out of the amazing goodness of God to be a part of his plan to reach the world for his son, Jesus Christ. You are a crucial part of this and the directive he's going to give you is right here. He says, let your light shine. The assumption, of course, is that if you're following Christ, you have that character. You have that poverty of spirit and you have that mourning over sin, that humility and that longing for righteousness. And now he's saying that if you live out this character, here's what should guide the way you think about your life is now think of a way be strategic and thoughtful, how do you let that light shine in the lives of the people around you? Start thinking about that. See, you, uh, you've all been seeing it. If you've watched the news, you've kept up with the frenzy uh, that's going on in the news cycles, and even you've probably noticed with all the different things happening in the world, how Christianity is becoming more and more marginalized. You've noticed that. According to surveys, there's a number of people, and it's increasing every year, who on the religious survey are checking the box, none. They're not saying they're Christian. They're not saying they're Protestant. They're not even saying they're Catholic. They're not even saying they're Jewish. They're not even saying they're uh, Muslim. They're saying they're none, nothing. They're, they're adhering to no religion. They're saying they're not religious at all. This is growing in America every year. More and more people say, I want nothing to do with religion. Even people who see church buildings more and more in America are saying, I have nothing to do with that institution, whatever it represents. Churches are becoming more like mosques. The way we would think of a mosque is how more and more Americans are beginning to think of churches. They see a church and they don't think they have any reason to go in there. No reason to go in. It doesn't matter if they're given helpful tips on how to have a strong marriage. They're not going into the church. There's no reason why they would want to go to church. One British pastor cited a survey. It said this, 70% of Brits are declaring they have no intention of ever attending a church service for any reason. 
Seven out of ten people in England are saying, I'm never going to church for any reason whatsoever. I'm not going for Easter. I'm not going for Mother's Day. I'm not going for a funeral. I'm not going for a wedding. I'm not going for the Christmas Eve service. I'm just never going to go to church. This is more and more happening in America. There used to be that as Sunday morning came around, even if you weren't a believer, you might just find yourself in church because that was the thing to do. This is not the way it is anymore. Gone are the days that we can just try to make this a cool hop and place in here and just draw the crowds if we really want to reach people for Jesus. The church can't play the come and see game anymore. The church, I think, needs to get back to the basic, simple strategy that Jesus gives us here. And that simple strategy is, hey, act like Christians. It's kind of simple. The way to reach the world according to Jesus is to have the character that the Beatitudes line up and then to shine. Ordinary Christians live in their lives shining the light of the gospel wherever they go. So Jesus would say, hey, this world is going to go from bad to worse. Jesus will say, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. The apostle in, in 2 Timothy 3 says it's getting worse and worse, and in the latter days it'll get even worse. We can't expect this place to get better and for people suddenly to realize, oh yeah, maybe I should go to church. The church needs to be the church. Holy, set apart. And we need to let our light shine. He says, let our light shine before men. He's giving uh, direction. Here's who you are. You are light. You are salt. And then he gives a directive. Now let it shine. Here's what I think he means. Think about this. Jesus is saying that we ought to have unbelievers in our life who know us well enough to know what we love, to know who we worship, to know what we believe. I think Jesus would be appalled that some of his followers throughout the ages have thought that Jesus wants the people to just huddle together in a monastery or a cloister and cut themselves off from the world. I don't think that's at all what Jesus intended when he called us to be light. What's the point of having a light? It's to shine in darkness. Christians don't run from darkness. They shine in darkness. And he's saying that we should have people who observe the way we live and they recognize what we stand for and they see the convictions that we have and the values we adhere to. They see the relationships we have. They watch how we treat our spouse, our kids, our neighbors and they see that and they're able to understand something about the character of God. Now if you wanted to know about Marxism, you could pick up Karl Marx's thousand-page book, Das Kapital, and you could try to read through it from cover to cover, and you might have a little bit of an understanding of communism and Marxism. Or you can go look at all the countries that tried it, and you would see that it's a failing system because the people who tried to put those ideas into practice, it never ended up panning out, did it? So your neighbor... Maybe to know what Christianity is all about, maybe could try to pick up this ancient book we know is inspired by the Spirit, and maybe they could read through it and understand it. Praise the Lord, some people have done that, and they've come to know Christ that way. But another thing they can do, and probably this is what they'll do first, is they'll want to know a Christian. And they'll want to look at a church. 
And they'll want to see, are the things you say you believe true? Do they work in your life? Do they work in your marriage? Do they work in the way you treat your kids? Do they work in the way you treat your neighbors? Do you actually have a system of thinking and believing that actually shapes your life in a compelling way that I would want to be a part of it? And I tell you, the church ought to be a community so compelling so beautiful, so humane, the way we treat one another and love one another and the grace we show one another and the way we forgive one another, the way we embrace one another, the way we can be honest with one another but still be united with one another should be such a compelling community that when people see that in action, they say, I want it in. I I want that gospel. What is it that you have that I don't that you could give me? It's compelling So Jesus is saying, don't hide your light under a basket. Don't get your life and hide it and cut yourself off from the world. No, put your light on a stand. Put your life on a stand so people who don't know God can see what God is like. Lamps are for dark places. You should have some relationships, I think as a response to this text, some relationships with people who are living pretty dark lives. I think that's what Jesus did. Your life ought to be seen by the world. God wants you to reach people. You have a role to play. God saved you and put you where he has you right this moment for such a time as this. For something he has for you to do. You're not at your job on accident. You're not in your neighborhood on accident. Your co-workers are not a hindrance to you doing ministry. They are the ministry. How does God intend to reach your neighborhood? He puts you there. That you're to be the salt and you're to be the light. Listen, church. The gospel came to you because it was on its way to someone else. It's not to stop with us. We are to be reflectors of the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And this idea that Jesus tells us, let your light shine ought to be one of the organizing principles of our lives. What do you use to organize your life around? What what is the organizing principle? Is it your career? You're going to follow wherever your career goes? Is it your possessions and you're going to arrange your whole life so as to get and accumulate possessions? What's the organizing principle of your life that drives all other decisions What's the question that helps you know where to live and where to work and who to marry? I think Jesus would say the question that we ask ourselves in obedience to this text, we say, what can I do to cause the light of Christ in my life to shine more brightly? I want to arrange my life for maximum shining. I've seen the theaters where the, the, the theater's dark and the stage gets set and there's uh, total darkness on the stage. And there's lights all up in the rafters that will shine in various parts. And you got one light that shines big and you got some lights that just shine really specifically and follow the people around. And as you come and you watch the play, maybe you don't even notice the lights because they're so perfectly organized and they're uh, executed so well and the people on the stage are the ones that are shining. But at some point behind the scenes, someone was up there 
thinking very carefully about how to position the light. How can I get this light in a position where it shines in exactly the place it needs to shine? And I think the Christian ought to ask themselves that question. How do I position my life? How do I arrange my life so as the light of Christ will shine? And it is questions like that that send people to the Philippines. Because they say, there's a dark place there, and they need Christ, and I can shine there. It's that question that causes people to move 70 miles to a place they never heard of, to start it in a church that can reach the community. You're asking, how can I get my light to shine? We all ask these questions. That's the organizing principle of the Christian's life. I am salt. God has declared that I am. I am light. God has declared that I am. Now, how can I let my light shine? Maximum capacity, how can I make it shine? Two words to write down and think about in practical application. Two words and we're done. First, invite. Invite people into your life. One of the qualifications for an elder is hospitality. The reason elders are supposed to be hospitable is because The whole church is meant to follow the example of hospitality. Christians ought to be hospitable people. And so one of the issues here is, are we welcoming? So the word invite, are you inviting people into your life? Maybe you could throw a barbecue for your neighborhood and seen people do that. Maybe you could reach out and invite friends for dinner. Maybe we could start here in the church and keep inviting people in our lives and get to know each other better and then get to the point where we invite these unbelievers into our lives. We share our lives with them. We share our convictions with them. We share our values with them. We invite them in. The second word is invest. So inviting is when you ask someone to come to you. Well, investing is when you go to them. I've always been told that if you invest little amounts of money over a long period of time, you'll eventually have a lot of money. I've only heard that. I've never actually experienced that. But that's what I've heard, that you could actually get a lot of money that way. The same is kind of true in relationships. You invest a little here. Invest. You you, you show care. You show attention. You ask good questions. You You pray for people. You listen to people. You go and spend time with people. You're investing, you're investing, you're investing. Remember I knew a guy who said, I've shared the gospel with everyone on my block. And if you were to ask him, well, did you ever talk to him again after that? He would have said, well, no. Well, that's not what it means to shine. Shining is a part of your character that just comes out. And inviting and investing is part of the normal life of a Christian is we're hospitable people. We welcome people in and we're loving, merciful, compassionate people. So we go to them as well. Invite, invest. Maybe one of the ways we can apply this sermon is to ask ourselves, do I have character that shines Do I have a character that shines the greatness of my Father? Because that's the point. They're supposed to see our character and give glory to our Father in heaven. Do we have a church that shines? Do we have a salty church? A light shining church? 
Maybe we could encourage one another and pray for one another and call each other up and ask for how we can help one another. And maybe we could start reading scripture with one another and really start working together on our own walks with the Lord as we pursue what Christ has for us. You have a light. Jesus says, let your light shine. You are salt. You are light. The fundamental outreach strategy for us at the core of everything else we do is that we will fight to be holy. We will fight to be pure. We will fight to be shaped by these beatitudes. And as that character is developed in us by Christ, we will seek ways to shine wherever the Lord puts us. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we have, again, been called to something that's so high and so lofty and so far beyond us, so convicting that we humbly come to you and admit we're poor. We're impoverished in our spirit. We can't do this apart from your help. And we thank you that in Christ you give us the spirit who empowers, you give us the word that guides, and you enable us to be people who have been brought from darkness into light to declare your excellencies. And so, Lord, let us fight for holiness. Let us fight for purity. Let us be salt and let us be light. And, Lord, in our jobs, in our families, in our neighborhoods, let us shine the gospel of Christ so that you would be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and sing with us?